0: Hello and welcome to What the Dickens podcast. Series one, Great Expectations, read by me, IAN PRINGLE CHAPTER FIFTEEN As I was getting too big for Mr. Wopsle's great-aunt's room, my education under that preposterous female terminated. Not, however, until Biddy had imparted to me everything she knew from the little catalogue of prices to a comic song she had once bought for a half-penny. Although the only coherent part of the latter piece of literature were the opening lines— when I went to London Town Sirs, to rule le rule, to rule the rule, wasn’t I done very brown, sirs, to rule le rule, to rule, le rule? Still, in my desire to be wiser, I got this composition by heart with the utmost gravity. Nor do I recollect that I questioned its merit, except that I thought, as I still do, the amount of "to rule somewhat in excess of the poetry. In my hunger for information, I made proposals to Mr. Wopsle to bestow some intellectual crumbs upon me, with which he kindly complied. As it turned out, however, that he only wanted me for a dramatic lay-figure, to be contradicted and embraced and wept over and bullied and clutched and stabbed and knocked about in a variety of ways, I soon declined that course of instruction, though not until Mr. Wopsle, in his poetic fury, had severely mauled me. Whatever I acquired, I tried to impart to Joe. This statement sounds so well that I cannot in my conscience let it pass unexplained. I wanted to make Joe less ignorant and common, that he might be worthier of my society and less open to Estella's reproach. The old battery out on the marshes was our place of study, and a broken slate and a short piece of slate-pencil were our educational implements, to which Joe always added a pipe of tobacco. I never knew Joe to remember anything from one Sunday to another, or to acquire, under my tuition, any piece of information whatever. Yet he would smoke his pipe at the battery with a far more sagacious air than anywhere else— even with a learned air, as if he considered himself to be advancing immensely. Dear fellow, I hope he did. It was pleasant and quiet out there, with the sails on the river passing beyond the earthwork, and sometimes, when the tide was low, looking as if they belonged to sunken ships that were still sailing on at the bottom of the water. Whenever I watched the vessels standing out to sea with their white sails spread, I somehow thought of Miss Havisham and Estella, and whenever the light struck a slant, afar off, upon a cloud, or sail, or green hillside, or waterline, it was just the same. Miss Havisham and Estella and the strange house and the strange life appeared to have something to do with everything that was picturesque. On Sunday, when Joe, greatly enjoying his pipe, had so plumed himself on being most awful dull, "'that I had given him up for the day. "'I lay on the earthwork for some time "'with my chin on my hand, "'descrying traces of Miss Havisham and Estella "'all over the prospect, "'in the sky and in the water, "'until at last I resolved to mention a thought "'concerning them that had been much in my head. "'Joe,' I said, "'don't you think I ought to make Miss Havisham a visit?' "'Well, Pip,' Returned Joe slowly, considering, "What for? What for, Joe? What is any visit made for?" There is some visits, perhaps," said Joe, as for ever remains open to the question, Pip. But in regard to visiting Miss Avisham, she might think you wanted something, expected something of her. Don't you think I might say that I did not, Joe? You might, old chap, said Joe, and she might credit it. Similarly, she mightn't. Joe felt, as I did, that he had made a point there, and he pulled hard at his pipe to keep himself from weakening it by repetition. You see, Pip, Joe pursued as soon as he was past that danger, Miss Havisham done the handsome thing by you. When Miss Havisham done the handsome thing by you, she called me back to say to me as that were all. Yes, Joe, I heard her. All, Joe repeated very emphatically. Yes, Joe, I tell you, I heard her. Which I mean to say, Pip, it might be that her meaning were make an end on it, as you was. Me to the north and you to the south. Keep in sunders. I had thought of that too, and it was very far from comforting to me to find that he had thought of it, for it seemed to render it more probable. But Joe? Yes, old chap? Here am I getting on in the first year of my time, and since the day of my being bound, I have never thanked Miss Havisham, or asked after her, or shown that I remember her. That's true, Pip, and unless you was to turn her out a set of shoes all four round, and which, I mean to say, as even a set of shoes all four round might not be acceptable as a present in a total vacancy of hooves, I don't mean that sort of remembrance, Joe. I don't mean a present. But Joe had got the idea of a present in his head and must harp upon it. Or even said he, if you was helped to knocking her up a new chain for the front door, or say a gross or two of shark-headed screws for general use, or some light fancy article such as a toasting fork when she took her muffins or a gridiron when she took a sprat or such like, I don't mean any present at all, Joe. I interposed, well said Joe, still harping on it as though I had particularly pressed it, if I was yourself, Pip I wouldn't. No, I would not. For what's a door chain when she's got one always up? And shark headers is open to misrepresentations. And if it was a toasting fork, you'd go into brass and do yourself no credit. And the uncommonest workman can't show himself uncommon in a gridiron, for a gridiron is a gridiron said Joe, steadfastly, impressing it upon me as if he were endeavouring to rouse me from a fixed delusion. And you may hame at what you like, but a gridiron, it will come out, either by your leave or again your leave, and you can't help yourself. My dear Joe, I cried in desperation, taking hold of his coat, don't go on in that way. I never thought of making Miss Havisham any present. No, Pip. Joe assented, as if he had been contending for that all along. And what I say to you is, you are right, Pip. Yes, Joe, but what I wanted to say was that as we are rather slack just now, if you would give me a half-holiday tomorrow, I think I would go uptown and make a call on Miss Est-Havisham. Which her name? said Joe gravely. Ain't Est-Havisham, Pip, unless she been rechristened. I know, Joe, I know, it was a slip of mine. What do you think of it, Joe? In brief, Joe thought that if I thought well of it, he thought well of it. But he was particular in stipulating that if I were not received with cordiality, or if I were not encouraged to repeat my visit as a visit which had no ulterior object, but was simply one of gratitude for a favour received, then this experimental trip should have no successor by these conditions I promised to abide. Now, Joe kept a journeyman at weekly wages whose name was Orlick. He pretended that his Christian name was Dolge, a clear impossibility. But he was a fellow of that obstinate disposition that I believe him to have been the prey of no delusion in this particular, but willfully to have imposed that name upon the village as an affront to its understanding. He was a broad-shouldered, loose-limbed, swarthy fellow of great strength, never in a hurry and always slouching. He never even seemed to come to his work on purpose, but would slouch in as if by mere accident, and when he went to the Jolly Bargeman to eat his dinner or went away at night, he would slouch out, like Cain or the Wandering Jew, as if he had no idea where he was going and no intention of ever coming back. He lodged at the sluice-keepers out on the marshes, and on working days would come slouching from his hermitage with his hands in his pockets and his dinner loosely tied in a bundle round his neck and dangling on his back. On Sundays he mostly lay all day on the sluice-gates or stood against ricks and barns. He always slouched locomotively, with his eyes on the ground, and when accosted or otherwise required to raise them, he looked up in a half-resentful, half-puzzled way, as though the only thought he ever had was that it was rather an odd and injurious fact that he should never be thinking. This morose journeyman had no liking for me, When I was very small and timid, he gave me to understand that the devil lived in a black corner of the forge, and that he knew the fiend very well, also that it was necessary to make up the fire once in seven years with a live boy, and that I might consider myself fuel. When I became Joe's prentice, Orlick was perhaps confirmed in some suspicion that I should displace him, howbeit he liked me still less. Now that he ever said anything or did anything, openly importing hostility, I only noticed that he always beat his sparks in my direction, and that whenever I sang old Clem, he came in out of time. Dolge Orlick was at work and present next day when I reminded Joe of my half-holiday. He said nothing at the moment, for he and Joe had just got a piece of hot iron between them and I was at the bellows. But by and by, he said, leaning on his hammer, Now, master, sure you're not a going to favour only one of us. If young Pip has a half-holiday, do as much for old Orlick. I suppose he was about five and twenty, but he usually spoke of himself as an ancient person. Why, what'll you do with a half-holiday if you get it? said Joe. What'll I do with it? What'll he do with it? I'll do as much with it as him," said Orlick. "As to Pip, he's going uptown," said Joe. "Well then, as to old Orlick, he's a going uptown," retorted that worthy. Two can go uptown. Tain't only one what go uptown. Don't lose your temper," said Joe. "Shall if I like," growled Orlick. "Some and they're uptowning." Now, master, come, no favouring in this shop, be a man. The master, refusing to entertain the subject until the journeyman was in a better temper, Orlick plunged at the furnace, drew out a red-hot bar, made at me with it as if he were going to run it through my body, whisked it round my head, laid it on the anvil, hammered it out, as if it were I, I thought, and the sparks were my spurting blood, and finally said— when he had hammered himself hot and the iron cold, and he again leaned on his hammer. "'Now, master!' "'Are you all right now?' demanded Joe. "'Ah, I am all right,' said gruff old Orlick. "'Then, as in general you stick to your work as well as most men,' said Joe, "'let it be a half-holiday for all.' My sister had been standing silent in the yard within hearing. She was a most unscrupulous spy and listener, and she instantly looked in at one of the windows. "'Like you, you fool,' she said to Joe, "'giving holidays to great idolkers like that. You're a rich man, upon my life to waste wages in that way. I wish I was his master.' You'd be everybody's master if you durst, retorted Orlick with an ill-favoured grin. Let her alone, said Joe. I'll be a match for all noodles and all rogues, returned my sister, beginning to work herself into a mighty rage. And I couldn't be a match for the noodles without being a match for your master, who's the dunder-headed king of the noodles. And I couldn't be a match for the rogues without being a match for you, who are the blackest looking, and the worst rogue between this and France. Now! You're a foul, shrew, mother gargery, growled the journeyman. If that makes a judge of rogues, you ought to be a un. Let her alone, will you? said Joe. What did you say? cried my sister, beginning to scream. What did you say? What did that fellow Orlick say to me, Pip? What did he call me with my husband standing by? Oh, oh, oh. Each of these exclamations was a shriek, and I must remark of my sister what is equally true of all the violent women I have ever seen, that passion was no excuse for her, because it is undeniable that instead of lapsing into passion, she consciously and deliberately took extraordinary pains to force herself into it, and became blindly furious by regular stages.' "'What was the name he gave me before the base man who swore to defend me?' "'Oh, hold oh me, oh!' "'Ah!' growled the journeyman between his teeth. "'I'd hold you if you was my wife. "'I'd hold you under the pump and choke it out of you.' "'I tell you, let her alone,' said Joe. "'Oh, to hear him!' cried my sister, with a clap of her hands and a scream together, which was her next stage. To hear the names he's giving me, that Orlick in my house, me, a married woman with my husband standing by. Oh, oh. Here my sister, after a fit of clappings and screamings, beat her hands upon her bosom and upon her knees, and threw her cap off, and pulled her hair down, which were the last stages of her road to frenzy, being by this time a perfect fury and a complete success, she made a dash at the door which I had fortunately locked. What could the wretched Joe do now? after his disregarded parenthetical interruptions, but stand up to his journeyman and ask him what he meant by interfering betwixt himself and Mrs. Joe, and further whether he was man enough to come on. Old Orlick felt that the situation admitted of nothing less than coming on, and was on his defence straight away. So, without so much as pulling off their singed and burnt aprons, they went at one another like two giants. But if any man in that neighbourhood could stand up along against Joe, I never saw the man. Orlick, as if he had been of no more account than the pale young gentleman, was very soon among the coal dust, and in no hurry to come out of it. Then Joe unlocked the door and picked up my sister, who had dropped insensible at the window, but who had seen the fight first, I think and who was carried into the house and laid down, and who was recommended to revive and would do nothing but struggle and clench her hands in Joe's hair. Then came that singular calm and silence, which succeed all uproars, and then, with the vague sensation which I had always connected with such a lull, namely, that it was Sunday and somebody was dead, I went upstairs to dress myself. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that chapter. If you did, and you want to listen to more of these, then I would love to record all of Dickens' work. But I might need a little bit of help. So if you can, and if you can't, don't worry, but if you can, then I do accept donations. If you go to the show notes for this show or any of the others, you'll see there's a link to PayPal, and you can just send me a bit of change. Um, I'll have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or even a beer, if you're feeling generous, and that would be lovely. If you do do that, then please leave me your contact details just so I can say thank you. And also, what I'd like to do is when I've finished this whole book, I'd like to package that up. And if you've donated, then I'll send you the full MP3 so you can have the whole book to yourself completely mastered without these bits. So you won't be getting interrupted by me at the end or anything like that. And you can listen to that as many times as you want. So you'll find the link in the show notes. And also, if you want to, you can go to my website and donate there. That's www.ianpringlevoiceover.com forward slash podcasts. And you'll find um, the donate button at the bottom. Thank you. Goodbye.